0: Hello, this is...
1: Across the country and around the world, streaming live on the Internet, it's Real Estate Coaching Radio, bringing you the latest news, interviews, and secrets of the top producers, hosted by award-winning real estate coaches Tim and Julie Harris.
0: We are back. Welcome to our radio show. So if you want to call in and speak directly to Julie and I, uh, the phone number for you to dial is 347-857-1195. Julie, you are on, correct? So the number again is 347-857-1195. 347-857-1195. So we'd love to, uh, to hear from, obviously, one of you thousands of you, hundreds of you, so feel free to call in right now. The other thing Julie and I are going to be focusing on is every day we're going to be doing a different topic, and ideally a controversial topic that's going to get people talking. And today's topic, the thing that Julie and I prepared to discuss, to debate, if you will, is going to be the ongoing debate right now in the real estate uh, world of pocket listings. And that is something that a lot of people are very confused about, very angry about. Uh, Julie, are you on?
1: I believe so. Can you hear me okay?
0: You are on fine. So, Julie, you came across an article today from the National Association of Realtors that was talking about this very topic of pocket listings. And so a lot of agents out there, you know, they're confused about why this is happening, or maybe they're confused about why this is even a debate. Pocket listings in one form or another have been happening Forever, since the very first caveman sold his cave to another, <laughs> another That's caveman right. and called it a real estate transaction. So, Julie, let's start out. And uh, again, if you want to call in and speak directly uh, to Julie and I, you will speak first of all to our screener, and then you will be allowed to debate this topic with us. And by the way, any other real estate questions or conundrums you have with regards to your real estate sales practice, then obviously feel free to call us. And again, that number is one three four seven. Eight five seven one one nine five. Call from your cell phone and it's probably free. One three four seven eight five seven one one nine five. So call in at any time. So Julie, you came across the NAR article about this very topic. Tell them about the NAR article, the National Association of Realtors article, and and NAR, the uh, you know National Association of Realtors stance on this very very highly debated topic.
1: Sure, perfect. Well, you know, I looked this up, first of all, because agents have a lot of mythology surrounding the whole pocket listing thing. And I like to get my facts straight from NAR just to see, is there an official stance? Is there an official definition? So starting with what are we talking about? What's a pocket listing? Some people have called them recently a whisper listing, which sounds even more mysterious. Um, what is a pocket listing? All it is, it's actually slang. It's not a technical term. It's slang for a listing that is simply not in the MLS. And, you know, there are several different shades of that, everything from uh, for sale by owner. It could be a new construction um, house that hasn't been sold yet, but it, it is not a – specific term. It actually is slang. So what does NAR say about this? Well, they actually haven't specifically defined what constitutes a pocket listing, nor do they actually have a, quote, official policy regarding the practice. So, you know, they talk about on their website, there's lots of controversy about that. There's two sides to the coin. Some people say that it violates local MLS rules. Some people are worried about the dual agency aspect. It's actually quite the can of worms
0: Well, so what Julie and I are going to do is right now we're going to talk about both sides of it. So in the news features, which Julie and I read every day, we read a number of different blogs. And by the way, if you want to uh, connect with Julie and I, the easiest way for you to do it is call in right now at 347 Eight five seven one one nine five, and also remember our website addresses, which is TimAndJulieHarris.com, dot com, and the and is spelled out, so it's tim a n d Harris dot com. Uh, that's our main website, and of course, you can also uh, read all of our ramblings on real estate on our blog, which is RealEstateInsiderNews.com, dot com. Real dot com. So. The debate over pocket listings, what's actually going on? And I'm going to throw something out there, and I know it's going to probably get me in trouble with some of the other people uh, who are you know, taking a firm stance on either side of it, but personally, I don't think this is even a real debate. Personally, I think this is just a little bit of a red herring that's designed to get people to stop focusing on what really is the true thing that's happening right now in our industry, and that is a sort of almost a battle between buyer's agents and listing agents. Buyers That's agent the real and issue, isn't agents and listing <laughs> That is the real issue, because really, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, if you're just basically building your real estate practice or trying to anyway around being a buyer's agent, and all of a sudden the listing agents aren't putting their listings mm-hmm. on the MLS, well, then really you're kind of out of luck. I mean, Julie, you run into that a lot, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, this is actually the the agents that get most upset about this are the agents who have, by and large, lived from their buyer side transactions. They are primarily buyer's agents. They might do a little bit of listing, but generally speaking, they don't consider themselves big listing agents. And I think one of the reasons why people get so riled up about this topic of pocket listings, particularly in markets where there's low inventory, that's when you see this pop up quite frequently, You know, they get mad because they have to try a lot harder to find those pocket listings. It puts more pressure on agents to be good at both sides of the business Both better at being a buyer's agent and being the one that has the listing.
0: Well, let's break this down, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this, uh, the people that are saying pocket listings or whisper listings are bad, and, of course, those who are uh, taking the exact opposite stance. And we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think that's actually happening in the marketplace and what your uh, opinion is about how things are actually how things are actually supposed to work in our industry. Again that number is three four seven eight five seven one one nine five. And if you don't agree with what Julie and I are going to uh with what one of us says something or when another caller says something and you know if you don't agree with them, hey guess what? Let us know. Let us know what you think and tell us why we're wrong. So here's the fears that I think that are going on right now in the marketplace. And again and our premise is that the true argument right now that's happening is the debate between agents, oh, I'm going to be a little more aggressive now, but it's true, agents who have never learned how to be listing agents, who have no clue how to list a house, and then listing agents. And listing agents, okay, we're going to go deeper here, are sick and tired for the most part. Those are big listing agents and big marketplaces. We coach a lot of the uh, top agents in the country. A lot of those top agents are tired of having their listings featured on the different syndication sites where the buyer leads that they normally would have generated, say, 10 years ago from just maybe Realtor.com or from their own marketing efforts would have gone directly back to them. Now those buyer leads are being syndicated, and we can discuss syndication on another call, but are being syndicated, and as a result of that, they're not getting the buyer leads they normally would have gotten. So what a lot of these listing agents are doing especially in a marketplace where there's a huge lack of inventory, is they're saying, hey, guess what? I just choose not to put my listings on the MLS. Now, does that work? The the debate is, the fear is, and the reason, and this Inman article that I read was very interesting, you know, the article is written that, you know, it's possible that a seller's uh, agent, a listing agent, will get sued eventually because the seller Mm -hmm. will have the opinion that, well, you know what, because you didn't Syndicate my listing because you didn't put it on every website because you didn't, you know, make it available through the MLS and it was a whisper listing or a pocket listing. That the the stance is that well, you know what, you didn't do the, you didn't do your job to get me the most money for my house. So Julie, you and I discussed this a couple days ago. Is that does that argument hold water?
1: I personally, I don't think it does at all. I'm sure everybody can find the one instance that would argue with that. However. You know, I remember many times that sellers actually requested that their listing be a, quote, pocket listing, and they have lots of different reasons for that. Sometimes it's privacy. They might be a short sale and not want the whole neighborhood to know about that. You know, There's lots of uh, instances where they have asked, hey, you know what, I don't want to sign in the yard. It, you can have it as your sort of listing, but I don't want a lot of advertising. So we have to focus on what the seller wants.
0: They're well, again, oftentimes
1: requesting it. You know and
0: remember, so so anybody who says that, you know, somehow the seller is going to come up later Being and say, well... Being
1: taken advantage of or something like that, well, right?
0: Well, guess what, guys? If you sell real estate, you sell real estate for a long enough time, you're going to have the seller who, you know, you put it in the MLS, you do everything... <laughs> That you, were, that you promised the seller you would do to get the house sold, and the house sells overnight. Anyone who's been in the business long enough has had this situation happen. You may have even thought you slightly overpriced it, but it sells overnight, and sure enough, that seller is saying, you underpriced my house and I'm mad at you. Sure, and that would happen
1: in the MLS.
0: That's right. That's what's on all the 77,000 syndication sites. The
1: I don't think still... it's a function of, of it being a pocket listing. I think sometimes that's just a typical seller reaction
0: exactly so the the argument that this is going to the, the pocket listings are somehow going to lead to brokers and agents involved in you know litigation because their owners are going to be angry that they you know didn't get the most for their house well guess what that's always been true that's always well, and I been the most
1: way to do it you know there the, of course now is that different than any normal real estate transaction you can If you're an agent who's not being careful, you can screw it up and make your clients mad on any type of transaction, right? It doesn't have to be a pocket listing. So is there a way to do it? You know, you can make it contingent, and of course, it already is contingent on successful appraisal. You can make, you know, have those conversations with the seller, hey, maybe after two weeks we do expose it to the market. As long as you're communicating and doing a good job and not putting, and I think this is the sticking point not putting you as the agent, not putting your economic interests before those of the seller. And, again, how is that different than any other normal transaction? As long as you're not do it, practicing what I call with my coaching clients, quote, self-agency where you're only looking out for yourself, you know, as long as you don't do that kind of thing, you should be fine.
0: Um, Julie, I, we have some callers. We're going to get to those callers right. in a second. So guests, uh, I'm sorry, callers, if you, have, if you want to join the debate, I want you absolutely positively to call us at 347-857-1195, 347-857-1195, and let us know what you think. So obviously, so far, we're kind of going through the list of fears that were kind of laid out in this Inman article, and I think a lot of other people are talking about this. Brokers are probably talking about it. So if you go through this argument against pocket listings, and you think about it through the experience though many of you have in the industry, you'll realize that, frankly, the argument against pocket listings doesn't really hold water. And, again, our premise is, is really what's going on is there, a, is there a very distinct division that's happening right now in our industry between the buyer's agents and the seller's agents. And it started, in my opinion, around 2007 when Zillow started, brilliantly, by the way, started putting – uh, uh, listings on their website with the permissions of the MOS, and obviously. And then buyer's agents were then able to purchase a premier agent spot next to that listing. And initially, that um, was believed to be a very effective way to generate buyer leads. And it obviously does. For many agents, that's a great way to generate buyer leads. So what has happened is over time, is, lit- and I think really what's happened And the reason this is a debate now is because the market's shifting, right? The market's shifting in many parts of the country, not all over the country, but in many parts of the country, back to what feels more like a normal market. There's constricted supply. Prices, as a lot of you know, last year went up a lot. There's a lot of reasons to believe that maybe, you know, I would say probably 50% of the country right now is experiencing a genuine real estate recovery, while the other 50% is not. So... Back when there was a lot of supply, back when there was a lot of fear and consternation in the market, the listing agents were like, look, I'm going to get it listed and I'll put it in MLS and anyone brings a buyer, great. But now that the market's shifting and now that the inventory is dried, it is essentially, it's not dried up, but it's essentially harder to come by listings. All of you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Listing agents are saying, hey, what? You know what? Guess what? I listed this property. I went and went through all the efforts to get this listing. I prospected, in many many cases, marketed to. Somehow I generated the lead. I got the seller to list with me. And I'm going to do everything in the power to get the highest price and best terms for that seller. But at the same time, guess what? With the seller's permission, and that's something Julie and I are going to talk about here in a second, with the seller's permission, there's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't try to sell that to my own buyer first. So anyone listening to this call, if you don't agree... That you know we, in essence, are advocating listing agents essentially building or, or, or real estate practitioners building their businesses around listing agents about uh, being listing agents sorry i 'm trying to read some of the comments same, same time i 'm talking if you don't agree, argue with us three four seven eight five seven one one nine five so julie let 's get back to it. The sure. possible legal implications of being of having pocket listings i think is i don 't think that 's legitimate i'm not an attorney. But really, at the end of the day, a seller could argue that the listing agent or broker didn't get the highest price and best terms for them. That's happened ever since that first caveman and that first real estate transaction. And again, our premise is is that really what this debate is over is the uh, battle that's absolutely happening between buyer's agents and seller's agents. All right, so let's let's dig in a little bit deeper, Julie. Why would, you mentioned earlier, a listing agent, um, when speaking with the seller, a listing agent would be able to present being um, able to list their property as a pocket listing as an advantage so i'm a listing agent right now i'm listening to the radio show i'm thinking to myself okay what does julie mean by that so if i were going on a listing presentation tell me exactly how i would go about um essentially selling to the seller the idea of being a listing agent
1: Well, so the idea of being a pocket listing agent, at least. A pocket listing agent, right. Right. Well, so I have seen many of our students do this, actually, and they will talk to the seller about doing either a private invitation-only type of event to their own client list, and they're going to talk to all those clients and say, you know what, we're going to put it in the MLS next weekend. So if you're interested, bring us your highest and best offer. So do you think that that motivates those buyers to do a higher offer or a lower offer? They always get great offers, and, and of course, these are based on comparable sales. So you know, as long as you're basing it on reality, you're creating some scarcity prior to putting it in the MLS, and most times it doesn't end up actually hitting the MLS. So advantages to the seller are many. They don't have to go through tons of showings. They don't have to have a sign in their yard. They don't have to run into their neighbors on the street and talk about where they're moving to every time they go out to take the trash. Lots of advantages to the seller.
0: Well, I'll even go as far as to say that in a market like this, again, depending on your market, you could actually use, in addition to what Jules said, you could actually use a pocket listing uh, service as an advantage to them listing with you. So I can, and this is something that frankly, when Julie and I sold real estate, we would often do. Now, the, the, the idea here is is that you're delivering to the seller some unique selling proposition, USP, that no other agent is able to deliver. So you would have to have, for example, a lot of confidence that you could uh, get the house sold prior to putting it in the MLS, prior to exposing it to the general public. And I think as far as convincing a seller that it's advantageous to them, it's relatively simple to do. It's essentially a lot of people in at once through a private showing. Uh, Julie and I can talk a little bit about how to, you know, a marketing plan around being essentially a pocket listing agent. So a private open house, a private home tour – a specific list of potential buyers that you might have. All these types of things could be presented to the seller and explained to the seller that listen Mr. Seller, a normal listing agent's going to come in here, they're going to put an MLS, they're going to put a sign in the yard, they're going to you know, do all the other things they've normally done forever. And we can do all that, but let's wait 2 weeks before we do that or a month before we do that. And instead, let's take it through the private listing channel. Now, Another advantage that private listing agents might have if they're using a flexible fee commission structure of some variety is they can explain to the seller that if I sell it myself to my own buyer, that I will somehow discount the commission uh, because, frankly, to make you the know, deal yourself. yeah, to make the deal work. So, Mr. Seller, it's advantageous to you financially. There's less inconvenience to you. I have this list of uh, p- uh, prospective buyers that I want to expose the house to. So, guys, it's easy to sell this to the seller. So the question well, Tim, I is. I remember,
1: sorry to, sorry to jump in, but I, I had this memory of when we were selling in a luxury market how important the idea of a quote, confidential sale was,
0: particularly
1: with incoming relocating executives, people relocating out. Not everybody knows whose job's being replaced when, for example. So the idea of confidentiality. Both in the luxury end of things, that kind of executive reload, but also for short sales, you know, it's it's really not a hard thing to sell, as far as advantages to the seller. And like you said, Tim, you know, you have more parts to play with. If it comes down to nickels and dimes, you might be the reason, as that pocket listing agent, that that deal happens at all.
0: Well, okay, so we're going to give you some real-life examples. And again, uh, uh, listeners, please do call in and participate. The number to call is 347-857-1195, 347-857-1195. You can also email your questions directly to us at questions at com. questions at com. All right, so in the world, you know, I'm going to go on a separate little, actually, let's start with the story. Here's, here's, something that an actual experience that happened in julie and i's own real estate practice and this was ages ago now this is sort of related to pocket listings but at the end of the day this is something that uh you need to be aware of sometimes happens in the marketplace once a lot of you a lot of you are getting ready to build very successful very profitable real estate practices many of our students are In the process of rebuilding their careers, rebuilding their, you know, essentially rebuilding their success story. And and some of you are obviously already on top of the mountain and you want to maintain that lofty position. The thing that all of us need to be aware of is that not all agents are always going to be advocating, let alone wanting to help us be more successful. So you, as a listing agent, this is just for the listing agents, the buyer's agents, you're not going to necessarily understand what I'm talking about, but as a listing agent, When you take on the responsibility of selling a house for a seller, you are absolutely contractually obligated to get the best prices, the best price, the best terms for that seller. And our belief is, in some markets, you actually will get a better terms and better price for that seller by not exposing it to the MLS. This is very controversial, uh, but here's the reason why. As soon as you put a listing in the MLS, as soon as you put a house publicly for sale, the simple question is, is, does it go up in value or down in value? Julie?
1: As soon as you put it for sale, does it go down in value?
0: As soon as you put it for sale, and there's lots of you know, people saying, well, there's a new listing. As every day ticks by, it becomes an oh, old listing. Well, the longer
1: it? the days on the market. I mean, what's the first question a buyer asks? How long has it been on the market? And That's if it's right. longer How than, long say, on the 22 market? seconds, it goes down think, in value.
0: And think about this from a seller's perspective. You are, say, for example, you have an opportunity to list a great house in a great neighborhood where there's no supply, and you know that you can sell it yourself overnight. If the seller lets you have a pocket listing, you say, Mr. Seller, we can always go the more traditional route, and put it in the MLS, and all that. That is an option for us. But here's the challenge: the second you put it for sale, the second that sign goes in the yard. All the neighbors are going to drive by and they're going to say for the first day, wow, there's an exciting new listing. I wonder how much they're asking. They might even be having those types of thoughts for the first week. But then after that, what happens? Why hasn't that house sold? Uh, There must be something wrong with it. Yeah, it's sitting on the market. And then in most markets nowadays, even in markets like where Julie and I sold in central Ohio, if it's been for sale for 30 days, then people say, well, they're overpriced. There must be some. The kitchen must be horrible. There and must people be. People are very you know,
1: quick to criticize. Very quick.
0: That's right. And I think that so the, you go, the
1: pressure there is worse as inventory goes down in certain markets that have very low inventory. The perception of what long on the market is gets shorter and shorter. So then it becomes, oh my gosh, it's been on the market for two weekends. Something must be wrong with it.
0: That's right. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, especially if you've been in the real estate industry for any amount of time. This is how the market actually truly reacts. So, you're speaking with this seller that you're wanting to take this listing, and you're explaining to them the merits of, you know, essentially having it as a private listing, which is what we used to call it, a private listing for 30 days. Explain to them that you will be able to expose it to the marketplace without actually having that, you know, time stamp on it. A normal listing, in essence, has Like when you go to the dairy and you pick up a gallon of milk and it has an expiration date, you know, and it has an expiration date and and no one's going to buy the milk if it's anywhere near the expiration date. Well, maybe not the greatest of analogies, but the same thing holds true when a listing's been for sale for two weeks, let alone 30 days. Whereas Mr. Seller, with a pocket listing, what happens is that I can expose it to my list, I can then do some private marketing, emailing and whatnot, uh, some private events, and then if we're not able to find a buyer, then Mr. Seller, we can expose it to the general public. So guys, the trend of pocket listings, private listings, whatever you want to call it, is only going to increase until there's a major market shift that essentially puts a huge amount of inventory for sale. Some of you listening that are in the Midwest, like where Julie and I used to sell real estate, you're saying, well, if I don't put it it in the MLS right away, it's not going to sell. Look, I get it, you know, but there are going to be exceptions. There are going to be specialized neighborhoods and price ranges where you know darn well that for every one listing, there's 10 buyers. In those cases, if you're confident you can get a higher price and better terms for the seller, then absolutely treat it as a pocket listing. So the debate goes deeper. So if you really think about the ramifications of listing agents and essentially deciding to opt out of the traditional MLS listing services, Julie, what effect does that have on the industry as a whole?
1: Well, I think the smart agent becomes a listing agent. You know, that's where the pressure is. And I think it's harder, at least the perception is harder. None of this is hard or challenging to learn how to do, but yes, it does take effort. You can't just, if you're not going to rely on throwing it in the MLS and praying to the real estate gods, yeah, you have to have a marketing plan for those pocket listings. So the pressure is on to use these tools and present these programs to your sellers. That means as a listing agent, you have to get better. The agents with the listings win every time. Remember, when you work with a buyer, hopefully you're going to get that buyer in contract, and in some markets, that's even a question because if you don't have super strong financing, you might keep getting outbid. So you might not even have that transaction. But most buyers do not necessarily create additional transactions. However, listings, as a listing agent, you're going to sell that. You might sell it yourself. It's going to create at least another listing for you in the neighborhood if done correctly. It gives you a lot of things to talk about within that neighborhood. The listing agents, you know the, the old saying, you have to list to last. I think that's becoming even more true now.
0: It is true. It, you know, Julie and I were—we've gone to uh, Europe many times, and, and in England in particular, I'll tell you what's interesting. They don't have an MLS in England. Each brokerage essentially handles their own listing. So, as a buyer, by the way, there's no buyer agency in England either—not in the traditional yeah, sense like we kind have of here. You're
1: on your
0: own. You're on your own. You go to the individual listing brokers, and then you talk with the—you know—essentially the the brokers in in that office and. They'll expose you to what they have for sale, and if they don't have anything for sale that you like, then you go to the next one. You go to the next one. You go to the next one. So that's that is how it works in England. In no MLS, everything's a pocket listing. It works. Whereas in different parts of the world, they have a they have a system that's identical to ours, where listings are put in the MLS, and then everyone's allowed to uh, show them, and obviously everyone's allowed to sell them. So now. The question ultimately will be uh, the argument. If someone's making an argument against pocket listings, the only real argument they would have is that by not exposing it to 17 different syndication sites, by not putting it in the MLS, by not doing all of those traditional things, that you are somehow going to get less money for the seller. So let's, let's really drill down on that, because that is the big fear. That's what the anti-pocket listers, pro-syndication types, that is their argument against uh, listing agents, and frankly, I see a lot of them that are starting to now use fear tactics to try to pressure uh, brokers to pressure their agents not to do pocket listings and and right. really Made at the end of the day issues exactly, so at the end of the day, the question is is will a pocket listing on average sell for the same amount or more than a listing that was uh, put through the conventional channels and our answer is of course now why Julie so why would a pocket listing sell hypothetically for more than say a listing put into the MLS.
1: Out of the fear of urgency that if it goes in the MLS, you're going to lose out. So you're going to put your best foot right. forward as that buyer. You know, and I think that the seller should be given some credit here too. Remember what creates value. Why is anything worth anything? It's what a buyer's willing to pay and a seller's willing to accept. Sellers can say no to offers they don't like.
0: That's right. If you have a seller that's on the fence worried about this very topic, you could always say, Mr. Seller, how about this? Prior to putting it for sale, we'll have an appraisal. And that appraisal can be left on the kitchen counter for all the uh, prospective buyer's agents to see. That's not a bad idea there, guys. Get the seller to pay for uh, an appraisal. It's actually obliterated, more like it, right? Mm-hmm. So have an appraisal done ahead of time. Have the appraisal sitting on the kitchen counter, copies of it available for any potential buyers. You know, When you do the big event, if you're going to do an actual event, announcing this new pocket listing where you're doing your private showings, hand the appraiser appraisal to the, uh, the prospective buyers. There's really not a lot to talk about there. So here's the conversation, Mr. Buyer. Um, that's the appraised price. So what would you like to offer? Well, we'd like to offer less. Well, explain to me why the seller would consider taking less, considering they have an appraisal, the same one in front of you right now, stating what the value is. Well, I think the appraisal is bloated because the seller paid for it. Fine, pay for your own appraisal. Or go and research all the comps that the appraiser used and determine what you feel the value should be. But at the end of the day, the seller has no appraisal, and why would they accept any less? The reality of it is, is that because, as Julie said, there's a sense of, you know, newness, of scarcity, of urgency, the house will inevitably sell for the same, if not more, than it had if it were just on the MLS being sold a traditional way. Now, I'm going to offer a suggestion, too, why that argument is bunk. Because what I previously mentioned, soon as the house goes for sale, the second it hits the MLS, the second a sign goes in the yard, the property actually is devaluing. That is just a fact for all the reasons that we previously had stated. For every
1: second that it's on the computer.
0: So you don't agree with us. If you think we're absolutely crazy to say this, I want you to call in and tell us, 347-857-1195. Again, it's 347-857-1195. Don't agree with us? Argue with us. Let's see what you have to say.
1: It's not fair to the buyer agents who are dependent on the MLS and looking online, it's not fair to them when they've got well-qualified, ready-to-rumble buyers to have to look for these pocket listings. How is that fair to the buyer's agent?
0: Or, or what really is going on in the buyer's agent's mind, how am I going to attract buyers to me if my buyers are not getting access to the listings that um all these listing agents have yeah, if what's you're a buyer's mar- like,
1: complaint every time i get a a uh, an email you know the whole drip system every time i see that <laughs> by the time i open it it's already in contract
0: that's right so the reality of it is julie touched on this we keep on saying this um, you have to learn how to list houses you just do going forward that's going to be more important than ever and it's always been true you have to list the last But 2014 forward, if you are not learning to be a listing agent, you are not going to last in this industry at all. So, again, we're talking about does having a pocket listing, that lack of exposure supposedly in the the eyes of the people that are against uh, pocket listings, does that result in a lower price to the seller? So Julie said, well, it's not fair to the buyer's agents. Well, that's that's true. I suppose it's true. If you're believing in the traditional co-op system, which we're obviously advocates of, uh, you know, Julie and I are strong supporters of the National Association of Realtors. You know, if you don't know what NAR is doing to support our industry, you really need to educate yourself. Without NAR, there's every reason to believe, especially during the real estate crash, that our industry would have been gutted. It's 100% true. They saved our bacon. You know, and obviously NAR is dependent on the co-op system working, too, and we're advocates of it. But what we're debating is this very specific topic that concerns pocket listings. And again, I read an Inman article, there's some other things that are floating around out there that are trying to scare brokers through, frankly, what appears to be a bunch of Mickey Mouse to us, and to pressure their agents not to do pocket listings. It's all designed to basically uh, placate the buyer's agents out there who, unfortunately, a lot of you have never learned how to be listing agents. So a majority of the agents out there, probably 80 or 90%, only know how to work with buyers. And as a result of that, because they only know how to work with buyers, they are absolutely positively going to be, you know, frankly, they're going to be struggling even more in the future than ever because they don't know how to list properties. So, Julie, staying on target here, why would hypothetically a pocket listing result in less uh, net profit for the seller? Uh, do you see any other arguments that could be made?
1: I i mean, all I can think is if, you know, an agent were to take some kind of an unethical stance and lowball it themselves without an appraisal, trying to buy it for themselves to flip.
0: The listing agent. Yes, that's true.
1: Which which you could say about, again, any situation, right? It it comes down to, are you an ethical agent or aren't you? It has really not that much to do with it being a pocket listing or not. It's how are you doing your practice? How are you doing your transactions? So that's really the only thing that I can come up with in my mind, assuming that, As the pocket listing agent, you actually have a marketing plan. You are doing certain action steps to expose it to enough people to actually get the right price. And again, if somebody lowballs, you do exactly what you do in a normal situation. You counter them or you tell them to jump in a lake.
0: That's right. So if you're listening, you can obviously, hopefully, I know a lot of you are listening live, and if you're going to hopefully listen to this again in replay, you're getting very clear in your head, I would think, that really, pocket listings are here to stay, and they're going to be built. There, there are going to be brokerages, if, if not, you know, top listing agents, who are going to have as one of their key USPs. In other words, list with me because I offer this specific private listing service. That is going to be evolving more than ever. If you go to any of the hottest real estate markets in the country, and guys. Um, you know you guys know we have coaching clients all over the country and all over the world, and we have top uh, superstars in New York City. the number one agent in California is a coaching client the and number manhattan. one agent in and ma- ma- yeah in manhattan many of the many of the country many of the major markets around the country we have coaching clients in those markets so And we have the top listing agents in those markets. And one of the things that all of them are doing, all the markets where there is a lack of supply, is they are absolutely positively making marketing campaigns around the fact that they have a private listing service, and that is attracting sellers to them. Now, that is a sea change in the way that the real estate industry has worked in the past. So, Well, that's a way to
1: turn – you know, what I'm thinking is a lot of agents complain about, oh, it's a terrible market because there's nothing to sell. Well, find out a way to take what the market's willing to give you. Pocket listings are fantastic for sellers and for the listing agent in that situation. So this is a way to take advantage of low inventory and do a great job for your sellers, get great referrals. It gives you so much more to talk about as an agent, the job that you did for that person. Think what that testimonial letter will look like from that seller when you sell their house in a week for a great price to a great buyer.
0: So I got an email, Julie, and I'm going to read it to you. I'll just take the heart of it, and I'll just tell you what it says. Sure. This uh, listener, and thank you for sending in this uh, email, Marcy. I appreciate it. She believes that syndicating your listing, i.e. having your uh, seller's house on all the different websites, the big ones and the small ones. We're talking about Trulia. We're talking about Zillow. We're talking about Realtor.com. We're talking sure. about you know, all the others. You know, Yahoo News gets their information. Or Yahoo Real Estate, I believe, gets their listings from Zillow. So... She mm-hmm. is saying that doesn't a listing sell for more money with the more exposure that it has? Now that is a very very interesting, maybe even a topic that we should hold off and to talk about on another day. But I'll tell you right now, there has never been any any proof that that's true. Anyone, no one has ever published a, a studied report, or in other words, something that's actually been done correctly, showing that the more exposure increases demand thus increasing price doesn't work that way now why doesn't it work that way let's think about that for a second the pattern of how a home buyer works has never changed even with the internet what happens typically let's just use you know nowadays is buyers for the most part we know go to the internet first they go to the internet first they get to know different areas different cities and then what happens is they'll drive around in the different communities that they think might be a good fit for them. When they're driving around in the different communities, at that point, generally speaking, if they have not connected with another agent first, they are going to hire an agent. So once they've focused in on a city and maybe even a neighborhood, a community, then they're going to hire an agent. How are they going to find that agent? Sign calls. That is and probably will remain forever one of the number one sources of buyer leads for listing agents is sign calls. So... Listing agents are smart, and they have realized that what's happening is their listing has been going on all these different syndication websites, and then not one, but hundreds of different buyer's agents have been, you know, maybe dozens of different buyer's agents have then been contacting that seller. Confusing the seller about the uh, nature of their particular listing, saying, "Well, did you see this one or that one?" or maybe the information on that syndication website is wrong. Maybe the listing sold two months ago, making that buyer angry. So, the other thing that's happening that no one really debate, they don't debate it, but they don't really talk about it either, is that the lack of correct information on a majority of the syndicate- syndication websites is frustrating consumers. And if you read the polls of what people's opinions are of realtors, Hmm. the polls are always viewing us very negatively. Why? number one reason is lack of communication, and and you're seeing a new uh, result starting to replace lack of communication, and that is basically their belief that we as listing agents are the ones that are putting up the incorrect information that's then making its – the outdated old listing information that's then making its way to all these different websites. So the consumers believe that we're the ones that are creating the outdated information. Confusion. Confusion. So that's a huge problem. So, again, the question is, is more syndication equal higher price? The answer is it doesn't. There's never been a single report that's ever proven that to be true. And then the next question is, is syndication actually hurting the industry and I actually believe, to a certain extent, it's not, but poor syndication or syndicating bad information absolutely is. I mean, Julie, yeah, when I, you have... Yeah, I believe have,
1: that... It, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, when you have a coaching client, and we have coaching clients all the time, that have to overcome the objection of, base, or, you know, of bad information. What do you, how do you coach someone, a realtor, around that? All the
1: that? time. Well, what they, what's really going on is that the, the client or the prospective client has this heightened sense of suspicion, which, you know, coming out of the recession and all the stuff that happened with, you know, the banks and everything else, they're coming from a state of suspicion in the first place. Then they go on one of these syndication sites, and they they have misinformation. It's wrong pictures. It doesn't even go with that house. I had that happen the other day with uh, my sister-in-law who's looking for a house, she said, oh, sorry, I sent you the wrong house. I forget which one it was. Had the wrong picture with the wrong address on the wrong side of the road. She's like, I'm not And it wasn't on
0: Realtor.com. It, should, it just, wasn't you, on Realtor.com, realtor. no. It wasn't on Realtor.com. It was from one of these millions of syndication websites, which are essentially using listing agents' information to try to attract buyers to them. And then those buyers, obviously, right. or some, some of them are filling out forms, and those buyer leads are being sold to buyers' agents who have never learned how to list mm-hmm. houses.
1: There have even been instances where an agent has put on, you know, has syndicated or put in Craigslist or various different places something that isn't even for sale at all. They just thought it would be a good way to capture buyer leads, so they snapped a picture, made up a description, and threw it up there. So So what does that do to to the buyers? That makes them real suspicious that anything's correct.
0: That's right, and so that's another benefit that essentially listing agents will always have. Those we do advocate putting your listings in the MLS, but we also think you all, you know, you first and foremost, your job when you sign that listing contract, when you agree to represent that seller, is to get the highest price and best terms for the seller. All this other industry Mickey Mouse comes as a distant second, third, if it's even on the list of top ten. Your and job it is your is obligation.
1: To sell- to present accurate information what does the seller think you're doing all day long right so to me i think the pocket listing actually honors the relationship with the seller at a higher level if you were to interview sellers listed or not who said you know if you've got an agent working on your behalf what do you expect of that agent on your behalf they expect the agent to sell the property they don't expect the agent to just you know throw it online and hope that somebody else sells it, that doesn't go on in a seller's mind. That's why they're always calling listing agents saying, what have you done for me lately?
0: That's right. And, again, guys, not all of you and not all markets will make sense for you to have in your tool chest a marketing plan to present to every seller
1: about essentially offering as a pocket. listing. Well, it's not appropriate for 100% of people. And that's where being a great listing agent and asking great questions comes into play, so you know when it's appropriate and when it isn't.
0: You guys know that um, some of our superstars are the stars of the Bravo TV real estate shows. And those guys in Manhattan, two of them are are superstars. Uh, Trust me when I tell you that one of the first things they talk to sellers about is, listen, one of the advantages of listing with me is that I'm going to put your house for sale privately. I'm going to expose it to the market in my private list. My list is made up of the movers and shakers that will be interested in a property like this. I'm going to put it, we're going to have a private party. You guys have seen on those TV shows, they always have parties. Well, those parties are for people when they're exposing the, a house to the market as a private listing. The other thing a lot of these listing agents will do after it's been exposed to their own list, before they put it in MLS, is they'll let the brokers in their own office know about it. So again, what we're seeing is a listing agent's reaction to, not being able to leverage all the benefits of being a listing agent. So they're saying, "Hey, this whole debate against about syndication, you know, the boards and the MLSs and the, you know, the CEOs, they can have all those debates. As a listing agent, when I list a property for a seller, it is my legal responsibility to get the best price and best terms for that seller, and I firmly believe that in some cases I can do that." through a pocket listing or a, a private listing, which is probably a better class your name for it. Again, if you don't agree with us, if you think we're totally off base, or if you do agree with us, call 347-857-1195, or send your questions to questions at realestatecoachingradio.com. Questions at realestatecoachingradio.com. Um, and we're looking forward to having uh, strictly a call-in show starting hopefully in the next couple weeks where we can just help you through your individual real estate needs. So in other words, you call in, and you're going to have a mini-coaching session with Julie and myself, and we're going to do our best to quickly and efficiently solve your real estate practice problem. So our focus is always going to be to get you making money the quickest, the fastest, the most painless – so you can become very successful, whatever your definition of success is. So, Julie, do you have any other comments or thoughts on this particular topic? I think we've kind of beat it into the ground. And, and uh, if anyone wants to, again, engage with us on this, you can email your questions to questions sure. or your comments to questions at com or call 347-857-1195. So any other closing thoughts about this? And, well, and we can, I, I
1: think – I like to look at all sides and make sure that maybe, you know, that there isn't something that we're missing here. So if somebody has a different take on it, please let us know. But we looked at both sides, and I think ultimately when you're making decisions in your real estate practice, it comes down to one thing, and that is what is best for your client. As long as you keep that in front of you, and you had asked, you know, how I coach my clients when these things come up, the first question is what is the best thing for your client? And I think sometimes in the heat of the transaction, agents – Not everyone, but you guys know what I'm talking about when things are heated. It's easy to maybe fall in and say, well, gosh, you know, I don't want to lose my commission over this. you got to stay away from those thoughts in all transactions, pocket listings or otherwise. And as long as you're saying what is best for the client, you're always going to make good decisions where you can sleep well at night. So when it comes up to, you know, how should I handle this, again, pocket listing or otherwise, what is your criteria? Did you use real comps? Did you negotiate on behalf of the SAR for highest and best terms? If you can go down your checklist and say yes to everything, I really don't see where the issue is.
0: That's right. So we're going to talk a little bit now about what we're going to discuss tomorrow, and that is a flexible fee. Uh-oh. Oh, that's controversy. Oh, i about Jim's not talking about uh-huh. commission. Oh, no, not that. That's the holy grail of topics.
1: <laughs> Yikes. So, Did you say offering-
0: flexible fee? <laughs> okay, Right. So we're going to talk about tomorrow, on tomorrow's show, having a offering to your, uh, your listing clients. And guys, let's just be honest. The majority of our radio show is always going to be about listing agents for the benefit of listing agents. And we're going to say this again, and I mean this. Guys, at the end of the day, there's not that much of a future if you do not learn how to be a listing agent. Learning how to be a listing agent does require a set of skills. It does require discipline. It does require organization that maybe a buyer's agent wouldn't have to. Let's be honest, most buyer-agent relationships are social. There's not a lot of formality involved. It can be something that virtually any agent, that's the reason that so many new agents or agents that have been in the market forever but have never learned how to be listing agents, that's the reason they call themselves buyer's agents. I know some of you are not going to like me saying that, and I know it's not true for all of you, but for the most part, a buyer's agent is always going to be at a disadvantage, an epic disadvantage to a listing agent. Okay, so tomorrow we're going to talk about flexible fee commission. But before we get into that, Julie, I want you and me and the listeners to talk right now about why being a listing agent, because we're going to say this often, is so much more critical and important as far as a set of skills to learn than being as a buyer's agent. So the question I have the question I have that I want all of you to answer, remember, you can call in and join the debate at 347 857 1195. The question I have, Julie, is can you give me an example? Can you give me one example of a buyer that has to buy a house?
1: Absolutely not. I got nothing for you.
0: Nope. Okay, that's the answer. So at the end of the day, guys, and any of you who have ever worked with buyers and have been in this industry for any amount of time, you know this is true. At the end of the day, even your most motivated buyer is not that motivated, <laughs> right? Even they your can most rent. okay, everybody hold... can rent. Hey, that's right. So if you ask a buyer, if you can't find the house that you're looking for and the terms in which you want to purchase it, what will you do? Well, I'll just keep renting. I'll just renew my lease. I'll just stay put. Sure. Everyone just take a breath, take a second and think about that. Think about that. Internalize that, understand that, because if you do, it really will change your future in this industry. There's no such thing, guys, listen, there's no such thing as a truly have to buy buyer. They don't exist because they can always rent. Hold on, Julie. What are you talking about? I have somebody that has to do a tax exchange or da 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 da. They have yeah. to buy. Is that no, true? No, they don't.
1: They can just pay. They don't okay, have to buy. There you go.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh, that's scary.
1: But, Tim, I have a relocating executive from Atlanta to Manhattan. They've got to get into something.
0: Well, no, they can always rent. And, I'll, and furthermore, Julie's point is a really great one. You will often find that nowadays, especially, a lot of the relocating executives are being pressured to rent, not buy. And Julie and I used to sell in an area called New Albany Country Club, and we saw this happen while we were living there. We, would, we used to continuously get referrals from relocation companies and whatnot, and Really, mostly there were referrals from people that worked at existing companies who knew a new executive was coming in. They connected us. That's almost where executive relocation happened when we sold real estate there. And I saw and Julie saw a very distinct shift that started to happen. This was now, what, a long time ago? Well, especially bad, after 9-11. But yeah, very yeah, after 9-11, important. then what happened is the buyer started coming to town saying, show me what you have that I can rent first, because I don't want to be in a situation where I could potentially lose money or i don 't the relocation company or the, my company there's no isn't longer going a to guarantee to buy out exactly, mm-hmm. so that 's the bottom line is that buyers never actually have to perform; they can always decide to rent. Think about that same question, but let 's sure. replace buyers with the word sellers, Julie, <laughs> give me an example of a seller you know give me ten examples of a I seller yeah. that
1: has to <laughs> sell absolutely well there 's always death, divorce. There's relocation. Uh, there is foreclosure, short sale, many different aspects. You know, no longer the safe list to live there. But, but mainly there are some cases where they absolutely have to sell. And, by the way, those are always the best listings. Why? Because if you have to sell, you are much more cooperative with your listing agent in terms of staging the property, pricing the property, showing the property. These are the best listings that are out there. That's hard to say about a buyer because to your point Tim, they could present perfectly. They you know they're all cash, they sound motivated, they're ready to go look today. But really, here's the question that I use. Will something bad happen if they don't buy? Well, That's not right. really. They could go rent. Now, on the selling side, will something bad happen if they don't sell the house? Yeah, there's lots of instances where it could. Something bad could happen.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, guys? I mean, if, you, if, if you've never thought about that before, the have to versus want, want to, a buyer ultimately just wants to buy. There are examples, and we could have gone on forever. There are very, very clear reasons why a seller has to sell. So you ask a seller if you're ever wanting to know what their true motivation is. Mr. Seller, do you have to sell or do you want to sell? So let's say you're meeting with a seller today. You're going to pre-qualify a seller today, and you're trying to determine their level of motivation. Ask the question, Mr. Seller, do you have to sell or want to sell? Or sometimes you even have to ask the question because they'll just tell you, listen, I just want to sell. I just I don't have right. to if actually perform and Right, if I can get my
1: price or something like
0: right. that. Right. And if I don't, well, I'll just keep leasing it or I'll just stay put. Those yeah, things well, you can happen. always
1: ask what happens if the house doesn't sell? Or what happens if you don't get, quote, your price? These are all part of the seller scripts that listing agents use.
0: It's, it's interesting, isn't it, guys? Those of you, again, who are internalizing this information for the first time, who've never learned how to be listing agents, this should be the biggest aha moment of uh-huh. your career. <laughs> right? That's right. I see learned light bulbs be- going off.
1: Over their head. Well, If you
0: learn to be a listing agent, you will know that your listings on your listing board, 5, 10, 20, 100 of them, however many listings you have or need to have, according to your own real estate treasure map, and our real estate coaching clients get our real estate treasure map book for free. It's our, it's our business plan. But dependent on how many listings you need, the idea is that virtually every listing on your listing board, your inventory of homes for sale, are motivated half to sell sellers, Think about that for a second. How will you feel about your real estate career if right now you had 10 or 20 listings sitting in front of you on a dry erase board, because that's how, as a coaching client, we'd have you use it, and you are actually thinking, okay, all of those sellers absolutely positively have to sell. You literally, in most markets, when you have a half to sell seller, can take the listing contract through the bank. Uh, you know, the, the, go to your bank, drive up to their drive-through, and cash that listing contract because it is that essentially has that level of value. That's what I'm talking about. Now, big give difference. me an example. Yeah, it's a big difference between having well, I have a relocating buyer, or I have an Good investor luck. that wants to purchase some more properties. You guys, getting this concept? There is a huge, epic difference between. Those, the power, the comfort, the control, the sense of security, the financial freedom that being a listing agent has over a buyer's agent. Then another little advantage, as a listing agent, when all of you guys evolve your practices to really focus primarily on listings, you will also get what? Tons and tons of buyer leads. You, that's, Julie, tell me, give me an example of when you had a, I remember a superstar interview of uh, Colette McDonald in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about when she had a light go off about her lead follow-up. Tell us about that.
1: Great. <laughs> right. Well, so I believe her saying is a twist on one of our coaching calls, which is urgency. She says urgency equals abundancy. Okay? So her job is to call and prequalify 100% of her leads 100% of the time. When she does that, you generate lots of leads. How do you do that? By being a listing agent. When you generate, you don't have to tolerate poor quality situations. It's not that the peop- there's anything wrong with the people. It's just maybe they're not quite qualified. They're not ready to go. So the more listings you have, the more self-generated, i.e. not as expensive as paying for buyer leads on, say, some of those syndication sites, the more listings you have, the more leads, self-generated leads you have, and then you can really work with the cream. Now, Collette has since hired a buyer's agent to take the overflow because she has so many listings. Nice problem to have.
0: That's right. So think about that for a second. So on today's call, what have we talked about? We talked about the fact that becoming a listing agent is a critical part of your long-term real estate success. We've talked about the fact that a lot of listing agents in a lot of marketplaces right now are Figuring out how to offer a private listing service, i.e. pocket listings, as an advantage to doing business with them. I'm here to tell you that trend is going to increase. I'll go as far as to say is not only is that trend going to increase, but that trend is going to be disruptive to the real estate industry. Disruptive in the sense that buyer's agents are going to be put at a huge disadvantage Buyers are then going to be questioning whether they should just be working directly with the listing agents. So while you still can, learn to be a listing agent. While you still can, because we are at the very beginning stages of what will be a seven-year corrective cycle in the real estate industry, this year actually marks the first year of what should be seven ever-improving years. Seriously, that's the cycle, guys. Pay attention. You're in the right place at the right time. So learn to be a listing agent. From that, you can build a practice. From that, you can learn to be successful. Anywhere in the country, show me uh, the list of the top five agents in any real estate markets, and you will see that every single one of them are listing agents, not buyer's really? agents, listing agents. Now,
1: let's be clear on something. If you are an agent who is living on buyers right now, and they're your bread and butter, and you're doing a great job, and you're being very active now, that's there's a whole lot of – Different things that go into that, right? Finding those pocket listings, knowing about, say, new construction that's not in the MLS, that sort of thing. Keep doing that until you become a great listing agent. And even our best listing agents, we always recommend that you're working with two AAA buyers at all times who will buy. So it's not that we're saying across the board, stop working with buyers, they're awful. Wait, don't misconstrue this. Yes, we all need buyers, somebody's got to buy our listings, right? However, there are always more buyers out there than than there are listings, at least in a normal-ish market to a lower inventory market. So we're not saying, by any means, to just drop all of your buyers all of a sudden. I don't want anybody to misconstrue that. Your job is to earn while you learn and work with those buyers while you become a great listing agent. So sometimes, Tim, when when agents have light bulbs go off, you know this, they just say, oh, okay, well, forget about buyers. I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, I well, yeah, so a great Julie, radio show, out. and it I mean, convinced me. <laughs> that's know. right.
0: So, you know, that's a very valid point. When we take on a new personal coaching client, and I'd ask you this question, so with Julie, she just said it, Where is your? how many cl- transactions have you closed in the last 12 months? You know, and you'll say, I closed 10. And how many of those were listings? Two of them were listings, eight of them were buyers. All right, great. So as you learn to be a listing agent, you will continue to be a buyer's agent. You will continue to make money from that because throwing the baby out with the bathwater is, again, a, a recipe for unnecessary suffering. So some of you have asked how you communicate with us off the radio show. No problem. Easy. I'm going to give you my private email address, Harris at gmail.com, Harris at gmail.com, or Tim at myhreu.com. So tomorrow we're going to be talking about flexible fee. We're going to be talking about commissions, one of the holy grails of never to be discussed publicly topics in real estate. This is something that will assuredly raise some eyebrows, but tune in tomorrow and listen. And if you have any questions that you'd like to email to us, email them directly to our producer at questions at realestatecoachingradio.com, questions at realestatecoachingradio.com. And a call-in number, and all of our coaching students, we want you calling in and asking any questions that you might have about the topic we're discussing or something else that's on your mind as 347-1347-857-1195, 857 1195 And, of course, if uh, you can connect with Julie and I at directly at realestateinsidernews.com or timandjulieharris.com, which is our main website. So, Julie, any thoughts? before we wrap up today's show in preparation for tomorrow's?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is that agents have really got to be tuned in to exactly what's happening around them and always have a mind to what they're doing about it. And if there's ever been any convincing occurrences of that, you know, a lot of these guys are still recovering from what happened to them during the recession. Well, what caused that? Not being tuned in fast enough and having the market bowl you over some of you. So don't let that happen again. The market is changing again, perhaps not quite as dramatically, but it is happening all the way around you. So your job is to monetize that by helping as many people as you can help at the highest level possible. So when we talk about things that might be a little bit out of your wheelhouse, the pocket listing, the flexible fee, have your mind open, because the only reason we're talking about it is because that's what the market's craving. Deliver what the market's craving. You're going to be a great agent.
0: The reason that we're, you know, we are, t- I have no way of verifying, I have no way of verifying this, but we've been told many times that we have the largest you know, in terms of student count, coaching students of any uh, real estate coaching business, we have more realtors that tune in us for their coaching and training needs than any other, uh, private entity. I don't know if that's true or not, but one of the things they always say they like about us is real-time coaching. In other words, we are giving you information that's relevant for today. So tomorrow we're going to be talking about, <laughs> we're going to be talking about flexible fee commissions. And if you want to connect with us, again, call in tomorrow. We're going to be doing the show every day at noon Pacific, 2 p.m. Central. Call us at 347-857- One one nine five, or, of course, you can email any of your questions to questions at realestatecoachingradio.com, realestatecoachingradio.com. And thank you for tuning in today, and our goal is to deliver relevant, current, up-to-date information designed to make you money every single day. Have a fantastic day, and we'll talk with all of you tomorrow. See you then.